Micah seven eighteen through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Janae. Let's uh, pray together. Father, as we say every week, we are grateful for your word. Lord, your word um, is powerful, the Bible tells us. And, and God, we know that your word is truth. And, and Jesus, you even said to those listening to you during your incarnation that the words that you have spoken are spirit and they are their life. And so we thank you for all of this, Lord, that right now is a moment in history when your word is going to be at work in us. And so we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that as David prayed in Psalm 119, that you would open our eyes so we can see wonderful things in your law, in your word, and um, that we would grow because of it, Lord, that we would become more like you, that we would increase uh, in our sanctification and holiness, Lord God, as we see what you are saying to us through your word. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray that you would uh, cause me to be uh, able to carry your word. Lord, I know that in myself and the frailty of my humanness, I am not ever going to be able, Lord. But I know that you can empower me by your spirit to be able to accurately and authoritatively deliver your word. And so I thank you for that, Lord. And I await your empowering even this morning, Lord God. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray blessings on everyone who hears, whether they be here in the building or watching online. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, awaken them to the reality of your truth, Lord, and um, that it is the truth that you had even identified yourself with the truth, saying that you are the truth. And Lord, let us not sleepily listen to your word today, but let us give clear attention, as Micah will tell us, that we should give ear, that we should should hear, Lord, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we are continuing. If you if you haven't been with us for a week or two or just maybe have started uh, attending, we uh, are continuing a series through the Minor Prophets. Those are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and um, uh, they're called, we've said this every week, they're called Minor Prophets because their books are generally shorter. We don't know as much about the authors. Um, and so we're going into the sixth book um, of the Minor Prophets, the, the, the book of the prophet Micah today. Now, you, if you're keeping score, uh, and we told you we were going to do this, we skipped over Jonah for the sole reason that we did a, a pretty intensive study through Jonah last year. If you're interested in that, you can go to our, our website um, and uh, look that up on the on the podcast page. Um, but uh, we're, we, we jumped over Jonah and we're into Micah. And uh, today, after we're done here, we'll be halfway through this portion of the Old Testament. Now, there's things about Micah that we know about other uh, minor prophets, people like 
Jonah and people like Joel that we don't know about Micah. For example, who his parents were. Um, Both Jonah and Joel tell us who their fathers were, but we don't know that about Micah. Uh, We don't know uh, much about him at all, except for that he was from the village of Moresheth. And Moresheth was a village about 22 miles south west of Jerusalem in the foothills um, known as the Shephelah region. Everybody say Shephelah. Uh-huh. So sounds like you're doing a magic trick, doesn't it? Shephelah. Also, though this book is heavy, heavy laden with prophecy, his call to be a, a prophet is not recorded for us like it is for, say, Jeremiah. We don't hear when God calls him or I, like it is in Isaiah. Um, he, he, in fact, if you look through the entire book of, of uh, Micah, seven chapters, there's no place where he's actually called a prophet. But what we do know is that Micah administered his prophetic call that God had given him in the strength of the Lord. He makes that clear in Micah 3 verse 8. He says this, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with the justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The potency of Micah's prophetic ministry uh, was so great, it was so well known that even Jeremiah refers to it in his book. He he actually quotes Micah directly in uh, Jeremiah twenty six eighteen. Um, now, as with most of the minor prophets. Micah has a similar job. If I just threw it out there and say, without even looking in chapter 1, chapter 2, any of it, what would you guess that Micah's job was? And you would probably guess, if you've been with us through Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, you'd say, well, I'm going to guess it has something with judgment. And you would be right. Uh, Most of the minor prophets deal in some way with judgment. So Micah's job is to announce God's displeasure with his people, both in Israel, the northern kingdom, where we've talked about that, and in Judah, the southern kingdom. Among the sins that will be denounced by Micah are idolatry. We've heard that over and over again. The seizure of property that was meant to be a lasting inheritance for God's people. The, the, The wealthy were coming and taking that land. Um, We see the failure of civil, religious, and prophetic leadership for the nation. We see the embracing of outward religious ceremonies and and thinking that doing that, like just being religious, is going to satisfy the the divine justice of God. Um, We see them engaged in corrupt business practices in Micah, and we see a tendency towards violence. All of that are are among the things that Micah is going to address that are happening in the nation. But Micah, if you were here last week for our our discussion on Obadiah, Micah is vastly different than Obadiah. Um, And not just in the length of the book. As I mentioned to you last week, Obadiah has no mention whatsoever of a coming messianic uh, uh, figure. No coming Messiah is mentioned. Now, in Obadiah, there's allusions to better conditions coming for God's people in a coming kingdom. But Micah uh, pauses in those places and he expounds on the salvation of the Lord and who is going to be bringing the salvation of the Lord. And he does that a lot. 
to, to really properly engage the book of Micah, you need to know this. That, that reading Micah is like breathing. You exhale, you inhale, you exhale, you inhale. There's a rhythm to this book. In one breath, Micah will declare fiery judgment that's awaiting the people for their unfaithfulness. And in the very next breath... Micah reminds them that God hasn't forgotten his covenant promises, that he will one day restore and save them. Now, Micah's prophecy has three movements, three cycles in the book as you read through it. Um, he's always writing in poetry, but he's, he's kind of adhering to that accusation, promise of grace, accusation, promise of grace rhythm throughout the book. And he opens each mo- movement of this book, all three movements, with this word. He, he says, he says, hear, Listen, hear Israel, hear Jacob. He, and, and he does this in, in, in the beginning of each of the three movements in, in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1. And he's calling God's people with this call to hear. He's calling them to pay attention. That was the big problem in Israel and Judah at the time. They had the law. They had the commandments. Nobody was paying attention. They were, they were uh, imagining that they were just God's favorite little nation just because of something that happened a long time ago and yet they had totally disregarded and abandoned the law and the the word of God. And this reminds us, this this is something that is a recurring theme throughout scripture. What did Jesus say? Matthew 11, 15, a couple other places. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, is that talking about people that have physical ears. Is he saying that if you were in a terrible accident and you have no ears, that you are now, you know, immune to the power of God's word? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. He's saying that those who are awakened by the spirit of God to their need, who have ears to hear, must be willing to listen to the word of God. In Revelation, Jesus is speaking again. He's speaking to seven churches and seven times in Revelation. He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that's real important because what's happening in Revelation is very similar to what's happening in Micah. Over and over again in Revelation, Jesus says this to his churches. He says, you're doing this great, but I have this against you. There's weakness, there's failure, there's, there's lack in what you're bringing to me. And so, similar to Micah, uh, we have that same, that same call to listen, to hear, to pay attention. It is just as important for us today to pay careful attention to everything the Spirit of God is saying to us through the Word. The Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, is not just a book. It is the Spirit of God speaking to you. People will often tell you they want a word from the Lord. And I say, here you go. Here's where the word from the Lord comes from. This is how you hear Jesus. If you're saying you're not hearing Jesus, I will tell you. I will accuse you. It's because you're not opening this book. That's how you hear Jesus. And so... We have this imp- we have this this call to hear to pay attention. Hebrews two one carries this theme even further. It says, therefore, Hebrews two one. Therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Now, 
You married men know what this like. My wife asks me to do something and I say, I'll get around to it. And if she doesn't remind me again six months later, I may not have gotten around to it. And spiritually, we're much more forgetful than we are relationally. Amen? And so it's important. Are you with me this morning? And so we have to pay attention to what God is saying. Or, or I can guarantee you, if we're not paying attention, as the writer of Hebrews says, we're going to drift. We're going to drift from what God has told us, and we're going to get in trouble. So that brings us to Micah's first movement, his first cycle. In this, he tells both Israel and Judah of coming devastation because of their sin. He says in this passage, he's talking to both nations, but he tells Israel, he says, Israel, your wound is incurable. Nothing's going to fix this. And he says, worse than that, your wound has infected Judah. And so he tells Judah, he says, Judah, I am going to bring a conqueror against you. There's going to be a conqueror coming. He's speaking of Babylon, who's going to fight against uh, Judah, and he's going to prevail against her. And the promise, and, and the promise comes, God promises them that they will certainly go into exile. And his point is that, that the, in saying all this to both Israel and Judah, is that sin is infectious, and God will not forfeit his holiness by ignoring Ignoring sin among his people. God will not just give us a pass because of some religious connection. God is calling us all the time through the scriptures, through preaching. He's calling us to holiness. Do you believe that? He's calling us to grow in sanctification and holiness. In chapter 2, Micah specifies the greedy landowners. He points a finger at them and he says that they've exploited the poor. They've taken what does not belong to them through the means of oppression. And God promises them, causes those wealthy landowners, that what is theirs will now be taken from them by foreign invaders. He also condemns false prophets who promise good times and, and happy days while, while, in, uh, you know, they're, they're under the, the imminent problem with God's wrath. And, but they're saying, oh, it's going to be fine. We're God's people. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. But to the people who have been victimized, the Lord turns with a promise of grace to come. This is the first one. That, that breathing rhythm, exhale, inhale, and, and we just get to inhale the grace. He says in Micah 2.12, I will surely... Now remember, he's just laid out a whole bunch of judgments. But then he says, verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Now listen, their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And so God promises in the midst of all this chaos that he will assemble, that he will gather his people, though they must be punished because of their leader's unfaithfulness, he is going to secure them in a sheepfold. He's going to put them in a pasture where they'll be safe from wolves and safe from raiders, where they will be under the watchful eye of the one known as the good shepherd. And more than that, he says at the tail end of that passage that it will be the Lord himself who leads the way into this new blessed estate that they will find themselves into. 
And what does this mean? Well, it points to something that happens in the New Testament. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the firstborn among many brothers. And he has gone before us both in death so that he could bring us through it. And he's gone before us in glorious resurrection so that we could share in the same type of raising because of his resurrection power. And so Christ has gone before us. He's gone through the breach. He is leading us. He is at the head. This is a promise, a full promise of a coming age where people, this wasn't the case in Israel, but, with, but the, the, the time is coming where God, where people will be saved and they'll cared for and protected by God's working, not by any effort of their own. This age was inaugurated when Jesus came and dwelt among us. And that's the meaning of their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. We are no longer, listen to me, we are no longer painfully subject to wicked rulers. We're no longer subject to false prophets or oppressive people because the Lord is our defense. He's gone before us. Hebrews 13.5 says it beautifully, For he has said... I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now is that the faith with which you're approaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Maybe you can kind of work yourself up to it on Sunday, but then Sunday afternoon something happens and dissipates. Are you living like that? That... that The Lord is your helper. Confidently say, the Lord is your helper. I will not fear what the politicians in Washington or Austin do to me. I will not fear what my boss does to me. I will not fear what my spouse does to me. I will not fear what what the, the, the people in my neighborhood or my city do to me. I will not fear because the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? What a great way to live, right? That's the promise of the new covenant. The second movement or cycle of Micah begins in chapter 3 where God condemns the leaders of Israel for being corrupt and incompetent. Well, the more things change, right? The more they stay the same. He says, your leaders are corrupt and incompetent. He compares their treatment of the poor among them to cannibalism. That's serious. The false prophets also come into the line of God's fire in this portion of the, of the scripture. He tells them that, that they, they claim to speak for him, but he says, you claim to speak for me, you claim to have insight, but I'm telling you, you're going to live in darkness. You're not going to have the slightest hint of the terrible things that are coming upon you. By comparison, Micah is held up as a true prophet who rightly proclaims God's words. And so these rulers, these priests, these prophets are all conspiring against the Lord, not just the people, but against the Lord to pervert justice. How does that work out? Well, the rulers are taking bribes for justice. The priests are, in, are interpreting the law in a favorable way to get paid by the people. The prophets are seeing vision for profit. See the little word play there? Prophet seeing vision for profit. 
But, uh, they're, they're not unlike, in this instance, they're not unlike common fortune tellers. They're, 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 they, they were called to be the humble oracles speaking for God, and all they're doing is taking cash to tell everybody how everything's going to turn out just fine. And it's not, because they're not speaking the word of God. And this wickedness is going to lead to utter devastation. Micah 3.12 says this, Therefore, because of you, Zion, because of you, temple of God, the the city of of where the temple of God dwells, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. He's saying that what was once this big thriving metropolis is going to be devastated so much that it'll just be look like look like a forest because it's going to be devastated so much. And this was a shocking prophetic message for the people of those times. Like, by comparison, like a lot of patriotic Americans, they were convinced that they were the most special people on the planet. That they were God's people. And nothing like what was being prophesied by guys like Isaiah and Hosea, uh, Isaiah, Hosea, and, and Micah, who all prophesied about the same time, none of those things could happen to them. But, but what they weren't accounting for, they weren't accounting for their idolatry and their oppression and how God felt about it. They thought that their connection as the people of Israel gave them some kind of pass from the wrath of God. And with the image, now think about this, they, they, they couldn't believe that these things could be true, but with the image of the promised land as a burning no man's land in their eyes, freshly imprinted on their minds, God returns in chapter 4 with, guess what? Another promise of grace. Inhale, exhale. There's rhythm. There's a rhythm happening. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So so God is, is returning with this, with this breath of grace and he's saying, someday this is going to be all devastated, but someday my house is going to be like the tallest of mountains. It's going to be beckoning, not just to the people of my own scattered, not just to the scattered people of my own people, the Israel and Judah, but he's going to be calling to all people. God is looking forward to a time when people from many nations will look to and come to and stream to the God of Jacob to learn his ways in order to walk in his paths willingly. The people, I told you that they couldn't imagine the the promised land being devastated like that. But the people given this promise could not fathom that wicked Assyrians and Babylonians who were just really making trouble for them in these days, or even their historic enemies like people like the Philistines and many others, or any other Gentile nation for that matter, would ever have any interest in the worship of their God. What would bring about that change? Well, in a few hundred years, a man would be walking in the temple and he would say to everyone standing there listening and I 
When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So what's happening here? The mountain of the house of the Lord is becoming a great mountain, a signal beacon, calling people from every nation. The cross of Christ raised high is the Holy Spirit's signal beacon. And he's using that beacon to call men and women from every nation to come and submit their lives for blessing to the God of Abraham, to the God of Isaac, and to the God of Jacob. And in that day, the Lord says that he will be the one who settles disputes between nations and brings about total peace to this world. Though this kingdom, as we've already mentioned, has been inaugurated by Christ's coming and his work, we long for the day. I hope you long for it. I long for it. We long for the day of its full consummation when wars forever cease. And we know because of the scriptures, we know by faith that that day is coming. God says here that he's going to make a strong nation out of lame people. Now those of us who have been weakened by sin, who have been up against the ropes because of sin... What what he's telling us here, that he's going to make a strong nation out of weak people, it's telling you that if you will just believe, you are not going to be kept from the glories of that kingdom because of our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Not in our own strength. The Bible says in Jeremiah, let not the strong man boast of his strength. We boast in Christ. Because he is the plus in our minus. He is the surplus in our lack. Amen? He's the God, he's the reason we boast. God's promises in this portion of this passage that Judah uh, will still be exiled. He tells him, you are going to be exiled. But that will, the, the day is coming after that when they'll be rescued out of exile and they will turn and destroy the enemies that enslave them. What a beautiful picture of God's fulfilled promise in Christ, even for us in the new covenant. What does the Bible say in Romans 16, verse 20? It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, Micah told his people, he said, someday, people, you're going into exile. Things, that, that, that ship has sailed. There's nothing that can change that. But listen to me. There's a day coming when you will have horns of iron and hooves of brass and you will trample your enemies. And then what happens? Jesus comes, delivers victory to his people, and we get a promise like this in the scripture that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. At the beginning of Micah 5 is one of the most important messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. But Micah 5 verse 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." 
Now you read that and you know what it means. That there's a prophecy that's gone forth that Jesus Christ will be born in Bethlehem. But I want you to understand something historically. That at the time that this passage was written, when it was spoken by uh, Micah, it must have seemed absolutely absurd. Why? Because Bethlehem at that time was under Assyrian control. They had made incursions into Judah and part of the, the land that they had occupied was Bethlehem. And yet Micah predicts a day when this tiny village, this tiny occupied village, that's too little to be considered an important part of their home nation of Judah, that, that one day it would be the birthplace of Israel's hope and Israel's greatest king. And he would follow in the footsteps of their, of their previously greatest king, David, who was also born there. And moreover... I don't want you to miss this. It's right there in the text, but I don't want you to miss this. God says that the ruler coming from Bethlehem would come forth for me. This is God speaking. He will come forth for me. He's saying that he's going to rule at God's behest and he's going to rule in the place of God. He's going to stand in the authority of God. He would be one who had long existed. We know existed eternally. And that he would be one who had long been promised. His birth would institute a great returning to Israel. And many would become sons of Abraham by faith. This king would shepherd God's people in the Lord's strength and bearing his majestic name. The the people would rest in security as he reigns even to the ends of the earth. And then that, that, that passage ends with a promise. And he shall be their peace. Well, what is this saying? It's calling us. This great returning is happening. Jesus calls men and women from every race, nation, and tribe to believe in him. He is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. He's been given a name, a majestic name that is above every other name. He tells us that no one can snatch us from his hand. Jesus reigns. And he tells us in Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He echoes it verbatim the words from Micah. In the third and final movement, the Lord makes a final series of allegations against his people. He reminds them that they have failed at every turn. Uh, can we be honest enough to say, has anybody ever felt like that? That in your, in your walk with Jesus, you just failed at every single turn? And he's telling them that. Point blank. He said, you failed at every turn. He said that they have neglected the God who had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. They've trampled on his most basic requirements of his people. Justice, mercy, and humility. A lot of people quote that portion of Micah very triumphantly. Well, what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But what God is accusing in the passage is he's saying, and you haven't done it, and you can't do it. So it's not like that's a little thing we should chisel on a plaque so we'll remember to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. It doesn't work that way. Because of all of this, the Lord pronounces his sentence in Micah 6.16. He says this, For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab 
And you have walked in their counsels. Now Amri and Ahab were two of the most wicked kings of the nation of Israel. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Chapter 7 begins with Micah mourning his broken and corrupt country. He knows that the Lord has spoken. He knows that the Lord will not relent from what he has spoken, the judgments he's prepared. He says that the godly have perished from the earth and that there is no one upright among all mankind. Paul in in Romans and David in the Psalms put it this way, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Micah's saying the same thing here. All of us are, are getting, from thousands of years ago, we're getting the prophetic finger of Micah stuck in our faces. And he's saying, all of us are pursuing evil. And Micah decries the fact Also in a verse quoted by Jesus, that even his closest relations, neighbors, spouses, children, even them cannot be trusted because of the evil that is at work in the land. Now, I know you can trust your spouse and your children, and I know you have great friends, but what his point is, is that there are a lot of people in his culture, in his day, in our culture, that are going to try to tell you how to fix the problem. Have you met those people? Do you work with those people? Do you live in the same house with those people? There's always going to be someone who can tell you how to fix the problem. And I'm telling you, if you, if you follow their counsel to a T, at the, at the expense of what God has said in His Word, you will find no solution. That the closest of your relations, as much as they love you, cannot help you if you close your ears to the Word of God. But then right there, after a few verses, verse 7 to be exact, in in Micah chapter 7, Micah resolves to wait for the salvation of the Lord, which at this point in his prophecy he has promised over and over again. And I like what verse 8 says. He's envisioning this, this time when... The, the enemies of God, the Assyrians in the case of Israel, the Babylonians in the case of Judah, are going to wipe out Israel and take Judah into exile. And he says this in his lament, in his mourning. He says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. He will bring me out into the light and I shall look upon his vindication. What does that remind you of? See, there's a day that came in human history when the Lord, hanging on a cross, pled our cause. When the Lord taking all of the wrath of God upon himself, executed judgment for us. And then, three days later, that same Lord walked out of the grave. And with that, he brought us all who trust in him, who believe in him, out into the light. And we can look back on a cross and an empty tomb, and we can say, I shall look upon his vindication.
Micah tells us that in His holiness, God will judge sin. He will not overlook it. But this book promises that God will always preserve a remnant and that He'll do so by His grace. It points our eyes forward to Jesus as the one who bore God's promised wrath for our sin and as the one who leads, feeds, protects, and keeps us in the mercy of God. By Him we are kept in the light. The message of Micah is that God's wrath, listen to this carefully, because some of you are here today under a cloud of condemnation. And if you're a believer, I'm telling you there's no need for that. If you're a believer. The message of Micah is that God's wrath will never overtake His mercy for those of us who put our trust in Him. Never. It will never happen. Though He may discipline us, we can even rejoice in that. Hebrews twelve six says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. And He chastises every son whom He receives. If the Lord is disciplining you right now, good news. He loves you. He has received you. That's good news, right? Would you rather be an outcast? Would you rather be an orphan, an illegitimate child? If He's disciplining you, He loves you. If he's disciplining you, he has received you. His love will never fail to keep us as he sanctifies us. So Micah closes with a hymn of victory and praise. Danae read it for us. As he delights and worships a God, delights in and worships a God who is like no other. Micah 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you? I hope that throughout previous days and throughout future days, that those words verbatim are on your lips all the time. That you can look up to God and you can say, Who is a God like you? Who is like you? What makes him so unique? He says, You're pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of your inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Man. What a collection of promises that is. Micah sees a God who forgives our sin. One who does not hold on to anger because this God finds his greatest joy in unending love. In fact, it's who he is. Because God is holy, love just is naturally the essence of him. He, in 1 John 4, 8, he says, uh, John says, God is love. It's not so much what he what it's not so much an element of what he is but in his holiness it's who he is it's 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 the 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 makeup of god is to be a god of love no matter what we've done no matter what kind of mess we've gotten ourselves into and man i've heard of some doozies i've gotten myself into some doozies But he promises that he will again have compassion on us if we belong to him. And let me tell you something. That's the catch 
That's the fine print. You cannot ignore God's law like, like, the, uh, like Israel and Judah did and just think everything's going to be okay. You have got to entrust yourself to Jesus who bore the wrath of God and lived a perfect, obedient life to God. You have to put your trust in him. But if you do that, he will always have compassion on you, even if he disciplines you. In fact, Micah puts it so beautifully. He said, he treads our iniquities under feet. He just, underfoot. He just stomps them to where they can't even be found anymore. And he throws our sins into the deepest sea of forgetfulness. And every preacher I ever heard growing up always said, and he posts a no fishing sign. And the last promise is the best. We, we like that idea of God trampling our iniquities and throwing our sin away, but... But the last promise is truly the best. Let me read it for you again. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Think about that for what I just read you for just a moment. The Bible says in Hebrews that God has sworn by himself because he could swear by no greater. What does that mean? As long as God is a truth teller, you and I who believe in him cannot be forsaken. As long as God tells the truth. And he's sworn an oath on himself that he will never abandon us. And that'll be true as long as God tells the truth. Well, thank God that God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Not on your life. Not on your life. What God has said, he will do. And if he says he'll be faithful to you, through your times of greatest blessing and your times of greatest discipline, if God has promised you that, you can take that promise to the bank. God will not abandon you. Would you stand with me? We're going to receive communion. I mentioned um, before that uh, I, I spoke no promise this morning to you who have rejected Christ. There is no promise for you outside of Christ. None whatsoever. And so we always encourage you, if you're here this morning, we're about to take these elements together. To you, it may seem like cracker and a little bit of juice, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> to those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we recognize that this is a symbol given to us by the Lord whereby we stand in renewal of the covenant every single time we partake of it. And so if if you're here and, and, and you don't know where you are with Jesus, please just abstain and give me the chance to talk to you. I'll do it right after service and just kind of help you figure that out because we are not, I say this all the time, our goal is not simply to withhold something from you, but to invite you into something. And so we want you to come to know Jesus. And so if that, if you're not sure, if you just don't know, just come talk to me after service and I'll make all the time you need uh, in order to do that. 
This is what Paul says. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Would you bow and pray with me one more time, please? Jesus, we thank you that you are a truth-telling God. You said to your disciples the night before you were betrayed and arrested, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And Lord, I thank you that you told us in John 10 that no one would be able to snatch us out of your hand, Lord God, that you told us in Matthew 28 that you would be with us to the end of the age. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that your covenant with us is sure. God, we thank you that even if this is a moment where we are under discipline, Lord God, that your covenant with us is sure. And we ask in the words of Hebrews 12 that you would let your covenant, let your discipline um, have its perfect work in us. Let us be trained by it, Lord, so that we can be sanctified and become more like you. And, Lord, we thank you for at a time in the history of your people when you had to pronounce coming discipline, coming judgment, Lord, that you actually said over and over again, but I haven't forgotten you. I'm going to bring you into my fold. I'm going to raise up a ruler among you from the smallest and most obscure of your cities. I am going to be the one who pardons your sins, throws them into the deepest sea. Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you for the, the reality of your promise keeping has been seen in Jesus and that we are reminded of that by this bread and by this cup. We thank you for that. Let our hearts be truly thankful today in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to speak a benediction over you to bless you in the name of the Lord. The Bible says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.